0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. But ba ba At participating McDonald's.
0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The death of King Edward VII in 1910 pitched Britain into a frenzy of mourning as the nation marked the passing of a symbol of continuity and stability in an ever more unpredictable world. Edward's demise, and his subject's reaction to it, is the launchpad for Martin Williams' new book, The King is Dead, Long Live the King. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Martin reveals how an ageing conservative king won the hearts of a nation experiencing dizzying change.
2: So, Martin, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure
1: to be with you. Thank you for having me, Spencer.
2: No problem at all. Now, Martin, your book, The King is Dead, Long Live the King start by transporting the reader back to the so-called Black Ascot of June 1910, which was just five weeks after King Edward VII's death. Now, this race meeting was, it seems, transformed into a, a great festival of mourning for the departed king. You describe black silk hats, black gloves, neatly Furled black umbrellas. You also tell us that people repeatedly muttered how sad it is that the king is dead. And then you also go on to tell us how people and mourners passed the coffin in their thousands to pay their respects to the king. Now, I've got to admit that I never realised that King Edward VII was so beloved by the public and that his death in 1910 would trigger such an outpouring of grief around the nation. So can you tell us a bit more about the public reaction to Edward VII's death? I mean, what did this period of mourning look like?
1: Well, in a visual sense, uh, it was very strong and very striking, um, almost immediately on Edward VII's death on the 6th of May 1910, the Lord Chamberlain's office decreed two separate periods of mourning, two separate periods of mourning which actually overlapped. Now, the first period of mourning was court mourning, which applied to the royal family and those in attendance upon it. And that lasted, believe it or not, for one full year, with a transition to lesser, so-called half-mourning after the first six months. The second period of mourning, which applied to the nation at large, was so-called general mourning, and that lasted for eight weeks. Full mourning from the beginning of May until the middle of June, and half mourning for a fortnight after that. I should explain that in both cases, general mourning and court mourning, full mourning involved the wearing of head-to-toe black, half mourning saw white, grey, and various shades of purple become acceptable. Um, in essence, the Edwardians of 1910 had inherited this ritualised, codified, and to our eyes extraordinarily elaborate etiquette of mourning from the preceding generation, the Victorians. And the majority of the British population in 1910, regardless of, of class or economic status, um, for them that, that etiquette was ingrained and its dictates would have been instinctively understood and observed. Um, most famously, as you've touched upon, the elite race goers in the royal enclosure at Royal Ascot in the middle of June were dressed in head to toe black. This extraordinary and quintessentially Edwardian manifestation of, of collective grief for a dead king and an episode that lies at the heart of my book.
2: So could you tell us a little bit more about Black Ascot, why was that chosen as the place where the elite would, you know, show their, their respects to the king and exhibit their mourning for his passing?
1: The answer to that is Edward VII had been so closely identified with English racing for a 40 or 50 year period, he had absolutely loved racing. Um, Queen Victoria never attended the Epsom Derby. She never attended Royal Ascot after the death of her husband, the Prince Consort, in 1861, whereas Edward VII never missed a race meeting if he could help it. Uh, So the Epsom Derby, Royal Ascot, Goodwood, Doncaster, Edward VII, both as Prince of Wales and as King, was an inveterate race-goer, and Royal Ascot, which took place towards the end of the period of general mourning for his death the preceding month. It was really an incredible showcase for the members of high society who had owed allegiance to Edward as Prince of Wales and King for the past half century. Royal Ascot was a wonderful showcase for them to display their grief for the late monarch who had been so beloved.
2: Why was Edward so popular? I mean, I'd always had this image of a a bit of a dissolute womanizer whose fecklessness hmm. had repeatedly landed him in trouble with his mother, Queen Victoria. I mean, have I got him wrong? I don't think I,
1: I don't think you've got him wrong as such. I think that is a popular conception, not a misconception. Um, but to to step back, um to answer your question why Edward VII was so popular. The first thing we need to do is reflect upon the context in which he came to the throne in January 1901. Edward's mother, Queen Victoria, had reigned since 1837. Indeed, at the time of her death, she was the longest reigning monarch in British history. She'd been a widow since the death of her beloved husband, Prince Albert, in 1861, and she'd only ever worn black since that time. Um, she had remained for much of the year in virtual seclusion in one or other of the royal residences, although crucially not Buckingham Palace, which she loathed. And even before her widowhood in 1861, Queen Victoria had largely shunned high society to recast the British monarchy as a very domestic, very middle class, and dare I say it, rather dull institution. So after his long apprenticeship as Prince of Wales, um, Edward was almost 60 when he came to the throne in 1901, Edward took a very different line. He was constantly in motion at home and abroad. He loved London and re-established Buckingham Palace, which he had extensively refreshed and redecorated as the beating heart of high society and of the heart of the capital as a whole. Edward was the least censorious, judgmental or hypocritical of men, and he loved to have a good time. What's more, he loved others to have a good time too, And everybody agreed that his charisma as king was almost palpable, and his love of fun and pursuit of pleasure in almost all of its forms really legitimised the pursuit of pleasure for his subjects as well, regardless of their class or background. Um, There's a good quote I uncovered during the course of my research. Lord Glanville, I think it was, observed that whereas the late Prince Albert had been disliked because he had all the virtues which are often lacking in the Englishman, his son Edward was loved because he had all the vices of which Englishmen are accused. And I think that really sums things up pretty neatly.
2: So was the fact that he wasn't Queen Victoria, that his period of reign signals such a change of direction of what had come before, was that kind of the secret of his success?
1: I think so, yes. Um, There was a sense of reaction against Victorian probity, Victorian domestic virtue, and these values were still subscribed to by vast swathes of the Edwardian population in Edwardian Britain. But Edward VII helped take the lid off this rather Buttoned up Victorian morality, you know, that had been stuffy and rather censorious. Edward VII was a real breath of fresh air after his mother's marathon reign, and he did have tremendous appeal to a people, a nation that was really looking to have a good time. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring,
2: Need to hire? You need indeed. You're also right, though, that this wasn't just about image and style and, you know, fun. There was a lot of substance to his reign as well. You describe a very, for example, a very capable diplomat. How did Edward shape Britain's standing on the global stage during his time on the throne?
1: Well, as Prince of Wales, really from the 1860s onwards, Edward had travelled more widely than any heir to the British throne had done before. He travelled to the US, to Canada, to Russia, to India, to Egypt, to Palestine, and throughout Europe. And thanks to this intricate web of family connections, which saw him related to most of the imperial and royal dynasties of Europe, He was exceptionally well-versed in European affairs and he felt at home in Paris, a city that he loved almost as much as as London. Um, So when he came to the throne, Edward was able to draw upon this this web of pre-existing personal connections and well-known allegiances, most especially with France, to further Britain's diplomatic standing across Europe and to help move Britain away from the policy of so-called splendid isolation, which it had abided to at the close of the 19th century, Edward was a major player in the brokering of the Entente Cordiale with France in 1904. And he also exerted himself to improve relations with Russia, where his nephew Nicholas II was Tsar.
2: Now, how was Edward's reign shaped by his incredibly long apprenticeship, his almost 50 years as Prince of Wales. Would he have been a different monarch, do you think, if he'd come to the throne in, say, his late 20s as opposed to his late 50s?
1: I think that's a very good question. Um, Edward was almost 60 when he came to the throne at the beginning of 1901. So he had accumulated great experience as a Prince of Wales. Uh, When I say experience, Queen Victoria had consciously, deliberately made a decision to exclude him from affairs of state. She really did not welcome his involvement in affairs of state, in politics. So Edward had to carve out his own role as, first of all, as the leader of high society, which saw him broker relationships with government ministers, with politicians, with aristocrats, with diplomats, with ambassadors. Um, Edward, as I've alluded to, was also tremendously peripatetic. So as Prince of Wales, he, he roamed around Europe developing these incredible relationships uh, in capitals as far afield as as Lisbon and St. Petersburg. Now, obviously, the fact that he came to the throne close to the age of 60 meant that he had accumulated considerably more experience than he would have had at the age of 20. Um, there had been a few blips, a few lo- wrong turns along the way. But, you know, Edward had really established himself as uh, a a, a, a benign um, a, a popular, a charismatic figure um, in late middle age when he came to the throne. and the experience he accrued really stood him in good stead. And to answer your question that that's not experience he would have had if if he'd come to the throne at the age of twenty or twenty five.
2: Now, the decade in which he ruled was, as you know in the book, a period of dizzying, technological, Advances, one of electricity and wireless automobiles and aeroplanes, as you put it. I mean, how much did Britain change during the Edwardian era? And did Edward somehow become a symbol of that change?
1: Um, I think we have this image of the Edwardian era, inevitably perhaps because we're viewing it across the chasm of two world wars and more than a century of unprecedented upheaval on both a national and a global scale. We view the Edwardian era as one of stability and romance and graciousness and glamour when Britain was at the peak of its imperial might and everybody knew their place in the scheme of things. But that's very much less than half the story. You know, just below the surface and threatening to break through at numerous points, Britain was seething with energy and indeed dissent by the turn of the 20th century. As you've alluded to, technology was surging. Edward reigned for less than a decade, yet the number of automobiles on the nation's streets quadrupled between 1904 and 1910. um, Wireless technology was becoming increasingly widespread. In 1909, the French aviator Louis Blériot flew the English Channel in his monoplane, a development which, even at the time, was seen to herald a completely new era in peace and war. Um, At home, you've got the suffragettes intensifying their militant campaign as they fought to obtain the vote. Remember, no British... Woman um, had the franchise um, in 1910. You've got the Commons and the Tory-dominated Houses, um, House of Lords, at war in Parliament over the House of Lords' rejection of the Liberal Party's budget in 1909, and over the right of the hereditary Lords to stymie the work of democratically elected government by exercising their power of veto. Um, and you've got the gradual coalition of the Bloomsbury Group, who would do so much to promote modernism in British art and culture, and who were in 1910 about to stage the first major exhibition of works by European post-impressionists at the Grafton galleries in Mayfair. Um, So you have all of this energy seething through Edwardian, late Edwardian England. Um, Edward, yes, he was a symbol of his era. But I think he was more of a symbol of the stability, the glamour, the romance and the graciousness than of the the energy and the descent, which was to come bursting through in the year of his death, 1910.
2: Now, as you just mentioned there, before anyone accuses us of over-romanticising the Edwardian era, this, yeah, I mean, a, a pretty powerful theme of your book is this sense of sort of crisis simmering below the surface of Edward's reign. Can you elaborate on some of the social challenges that Britain was facing in that first decade of the 20th century?
1: There were so many of them. Um, Again, as we've already alluded to, the suffragettes were vigorously campaigning for the vote throughout Edward's reign, the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, was founded in 1903, I think, by the messianic Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the most famous women of the early 20th century. We have to remember that in the first decade of the 20th century, so really the years of Edward's reign, no English woman, regardless of her class or economic standing, was eligible for the vote. Um, Throughout the latter 19th century, women had been entering the workplace, they were better educated than they had been before, and so to so many women, it just seemed incredible and untenable that they didn't have the vote. So you have dissent literally on gender lines, you know, you have women led by Emmeline Pankhurst campaigning for the vote, there was a sense that peaceful protest had failed. So the suffragettes led by Mrs. Pankhurst took a very hard line. They were very militant. Uh, They heckled cabinet ministers. They chained themselves to railings outside Buckingham Palace. They smashed windows. They set letterboxes on fire. They marched on parliament. You know, this was pretty dramatic, Stuff and then you know moving away from the suffragettes, in Edward's reign you have a hereditary House of Lords, the second chamber, the the upper house in 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 Westminster. Uh, its members were drawn from the hereditary aristocracy, and the members of the House of Lords could block essentially any policy any bill passed up to them from the democratically elected House of Commons. They could block any bill with which they did not agree, uh, which really pitched the forces of democracy which had been gathering pace throughout the 19th century. The forces of democracy were now pitched against hereditary privilege, and the final years of Edward VII's reign really saw open warfare between democracy and aristocracy between the commons and the lords. And this was one of the battles which which really signalled the dissent that was taking place in Britain in the Edwardian era between established forces, the patriarchy, the aristocracy, and the forces of the 20th century. And where did
2: Edward stand on this?
1: Uh, well, I mean, famously, he had no truck with the suffragettes. Before we know that Edward VII, as Prince of Wales and King, was an inveterate womaniser. He loved female company, but the kind of female company he he enjoyed was glamorous, witty, feminine overall, and he had no time whatsoever for militant suffragettes making trouble in a sphere that he believed was not their own. Um, He was firmly in favour of tamping down on the suffragettes, of consigning them to jail, of force feeding them if necessary. He had no truck with Mrs Pankhurst and the suffragettes at all.
2: And what was his relationship like with, say, the Liberal Prime Minister Herbert Asquith, who played a Played quite a significant role, didn't he, in the battle that was brewing between the Commons and the Lords? He
1: certainly did. Um, Edward and Herbert Henry Asquith had a troubled relationship. Um, Edward was instinctively conservative. Uh, I think he acknowledged that there had to be some sort of, of movement or compromise. He did what he could to affect to bring about to head off open warfare between the commons and the lords that being said he was fundamentally conservative and he actually flirted with the idea of abdication in the in the latter years of his reign, say 1909, 1910, because he was so greatly exercised by the dissent, the the acrimony in in Parliament between the the Commons and the Lords. Um, He was reluctant to do anything that he saw would be tantamount to the destruction of the House of Lords. Edward really did believe in in the hereditary principle, not least because he was the head of um, the most hereditary institution in Great Britain, the monarchy. And he he had a very fraught relationship with the Liberal Party, not just with the Prime Minister Herbert Henry Asquith, but also with Winston Churchill and Lloyd George. He looked with great disfavour upon them, particularly in the months and weeks before his death in May 1910.
2: you quote Princess Daisy of Pless reflecting on Edward's death, that it was as if a sudden dark cloud had descended on England when he died. Now, would it be fair to say that part of the reason that Edward's death triggered such a an explosion of grief wasn't just because he was a, a very popular man personally, but also because his death kind of crystallised the passing of an age and crystallised the nation's fears for for the future and what was coming down the road for the nation.
1: I would be hesitant to claim that Edward's death either uh, precipitated or accelerated the sense of destabilisation at work in British society in 1910 the forces, political, social, cultural that you and I have discussed were already in motion towards the close of his reign. And I don't doubt that they would have continued whether he had lived or died. Um, nevertheless, there was a sense, I think, in the 1910, that those forces were gathering momentum. And the future seems suddenly unclear and rather uncertain. Edward had been an extremely potent, extremely popular symbol of the old England that would finally be shattered in the summer of 1914 with the outbreak of the First World War. So with hindsight, it's, it's hard not to see his death as a kind of full stop separating the before from the after, and that's certainly what I've attempted to convey in my book. With the events of the latter months of 1910, the the, the capture of Dr. Crippen, the suffragettes storming Westminster on so-called Black Friday that November, the opening of Manny and the Post-Impressionists at the Grafton Galleries, you know, these events prefigured so much of what was already in train in terms of upheaval and revolution. And I certainly think the death of the king in May nineteen ten certainly tapped into that sense of destabilization in British society at large.
2: I mean I mean like you say it's so difficult to look back at the these events without you know, with hindsight we've all got the knowledge that four years later Europe was plunged into this terrible catastrophe that would change Britain and the continent forever. So hindsight's a great thing, but in your research, did you get a sense that the nation did have an idea that international relations were gradually growing a little more fraught, that there were black clouds firmly on the horizon?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was also a sense that international relations were improving in some quarters. And this is right. where Edward's skills as a diplomat really paid dividends Um, Between 1904, with the signing of the Entente Cordiale with with France, um, up to 1908, 1909, relations with Imperial Russia were also improving. So in some quarters, namely with France and Russia, international relations were improving. Um, But crucially, at the same time, they were deteriorating with Germany Edward VII's nephew, Kaiser Wilhelm II, was the German emperor. And throughout Edward's reign, that sense of competition, of rivalry, of hostility, there was a sense that tension was really building with um, the Kaiser's Germany. And I think there was also a sense that sooner or later, war with Germany would become inevitable. Edward the Seventh, as king, did everything he could to head off um, the catastrophe of war. I don't doubt that if he had survived to nineteen fourteen, he would have doubled down. He would have done everything he could to have prevented the outbreak of war in nineteen fourteen. But you know, even by nineteen ten, I think there was a sense. That, that war was brewing, Edward certainly had a sense that war was brewing. Um, famously, he remarked to a, a French friend um, just weeks before his death, um, he said, you know, I have not long to live and then my nephew, the Kaiser, will make war. And I think that sense of apprehension that Edward Seventh had in his final years and months, I think that was shared uh, by government ministers, by members of the military, and by the population at large.
2: And did Edward and the Kaiser meet many times?
1: They met many, many times. Uh, The Kaiser was the son of Edward's eldest sister, who had been, for a brief spell, the Empress of Germany. Um, When Wilhelm II's father died, Wilhelm became the German Emperor at a young age, and really from the late 1880s through to 1909, you have Edward as Prince of Wales and then as King and the Kaiser Wilhelm meeting on numerous occasions, both on state visits, family functions, on formal and relatively informal occasions at home and abroad. And Edward felt it was very important to keep the channels of communication open, but his nephew, the Kaiser, really made that Difficult. He was an extremely unpredictable, rather unstable figure, and any periods of goodwill of harmony were sooner or later, and I have to say, usually sooner, um, derailed by by one of Wilhelm's unpredictable actions at home and abroad. So yes, they met many many times throughout their lives and reigns, but alas, to to no real avail.
2: Now, Martin, I think I'm right in saying that Queen Elizabeth II died just as you were completing Mm. this book. Mm. What parallels can be drawn between Britain's reaction to the Queen's death last year and Edward's passing 112 years ago?
1: Well, you know, my book was conceived in 2019, uh, but I didn't complete it until the last day of August 2022. And I'd actually just started work on, on the first edit of the text as a whole, when Her Late Majesty Elizabeth II died on the 8th of September. So I was therefore faced with this rather extraordinary and even surreal set of circumstances, whereby I was Reviewing and rewriting a version of events from well over a century ago that I was actually seeing played out in real time on my television screen. Um, we can all remember Elizabeth II's lying in state in, in Westminster Hall and the queue. Um, well, the parallel was so complete and so obvious as to be eerie. Elizabeth II's um great Grandfather Edward VII was the very first British monarch to lie in state in Westminster Hall with hundreds of thousands of members of the public filing past his coffin in 1910, just as they did in 2022. And the the site and the ceremonial was essentially unchanged. The funeral, too, of Elizabeth II happened in exactly the same place St. George's Chapel at Windsor, where Edward and then later his wife Queen Alexandra um, were buried. More broadly, And while the whole etiquette of mourning which accompanied the death of Edward VII in 1910 has has effectively disintegrated over the course of the intervening century, it's it's hard not to be struck by the uncanny and even unsettling parallels between the end of the Edwardian era and the end of the era of Elizabeth II in 2022. Um, The Queen's death took place during the brief Time as Prime Minister of Liz Truss, uh, which was just one instalment in the ongoing turmoil, which has really beset Parliament since the Brexit referendum of of 2016, followed by the pandemic and and, and lockdown. Um, you know, in the background of our lives today, we have the cost of living crisis. With with the gap between rich and poor uh, becoming wider all the time. We have dissent and disaffection among hitherto marginalised groups as as Britain continues to grapple with the legacies of slavery and colonialism. And all of that is played out against a troubled and troubling geopolitical background with great power competition on the rise and the ongoing war in Ukraine. So although the world of 1910 seems impossibly remote in many ways, it's also strangely relatable in others. And and that's certainly a theme I, I try to pull out in my book.
0: That was Martin Williams. The King is Dead, Long Live the King is published by Hodder and Stoughton. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.